What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. This is episode number 54. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined, as per usual, by my co-host, Ben Fisher. How's it going, dude? Going pretty well. Now, I just want to pause real quick. There's no fire alarms happening right now, right? Yeah, it's funny you say that. I'll actually add that to my Teferi Tibolt. I have something to add <laughs> to that, uh, but no, I've, we should be good. With this building, though, it's it's always hard to tell, so... I mean, the last several times Zach and I have attempted to do anything podcast related, it seems we can't escape these fire alarms that keep going off. I, I think he burnt something in his apartment. Is that right? It wasn't right? me. It wasn't me. <laughs> I've never burned yeah, okay. anything in my entire life except <laughs> things that I lit on fire. I'm going to we're going to we're going to go we'll move on. <laughs> Cut that one off. So today we've got kind of a, uh, as Zach named it, a purgatory potpourri because we're in purgatory between sets right now. We don't really know what's. What's coming up, we don't really, uh, well, we kind of know what's behind us, but we're kind of in limbo right now. So we've got a few things to chat about. Uh, card evaluation, we're going to talk some spoilers and some other assorted nonsense. So uh, I think Zach has some some things to say before we do that, though. Yeah, of course, we have our usual housekeeping. If you're not in the Discord, definitely check that out. The link to our Discord server is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. The Discord is completely free and it's a great place to be to chat all things AFR as well as any constructed formats we just added due to uh, listener slash Discord member request. We added a vintage and a legacy uh, channel as well for the constructed section of our Discord and we have a ton of different limited formats available as well to discuss, so... If you're interested in finding like-minded individuals and discussing different MTG-related things on uh, a regular basis, check out the Discord. Also, the show is brought to you by you, the listener, via Patreon. You can check out the Patreon if you're not already a patron at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. This is what keeps us doing this day in and day out, week in and week out, and we have a bunch of different tiers over there giving you access to things like official draft chaff stickers the full show notes uh, custom deck building opportunities with us access to uncut and unedited versions of the show with some pre-show some post-show nonsense thanks to the patreon we are also uploading all of our episodes to youtube which is great and we're hoping with our next goal to hit uh, the ability to broadcast live as we record so that would be awesome we can have uh, all you folks jump into a live stream of some sort and and watch as we go through the show live and in person and on that note, we also have to shout out Robert, our latest patron. Thank you so much for your support. Really, really happy to have you on board. And uh, really, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. And we're also adding a couple of new things to the Discord, kind of rolling out some new ideas as we get into this, our second year of the show. So definitely look at that on a regular basis. If there are some things you're not uh, seeing there that you'd like to see, the Discord's a great place to give us feedback on that, but that actually segues into my next bit of housekeeping, and that is that we recently sent out a survey to all of our Discord members, our Twitter fans, and if you aren't on either of those channels following us, uh, it was in the episode description of last episode, it'll also be in the episode description of this episode. Check out that survey, it really helps us a lot to shape the show as we're going into the second year to really hit the sweet spots of what we've been trying to do as well as what you guys are interested in hearing and like like us to cover and like us to stop wasting time on or all these different things there it's it's really a big help we've got some uh, feedback rolling in on that already and it's been a big help and it actually helped put us 
onto this episode topic this week. So without further ado, onto our Cracker Draft type thing. Right. So this week we've got a a bit of a unique one. I wasn't really feeling Strixhaven. And there's some sets going around right now. There's the, the, what is it, Chromatic Cube, which is kind of sweet. But I, I wanted to do something paper. You know, I, Zach and I were a little spoiled. We got to crack some paper packs over the weekend. I'm kind of feeling like sticking with it. So actually, shout out to uh, some of the Discord members who are organizing a sealed league. I happen to have six packs on hand. And look, I know I just can't really resist. Now, by the time this episode comes out, it'll, some of you might not even hear this by the time uh, <laughs> we crack the packs for the sealed league. It's happening on the same day as this episode releases. Uh, those that are listening that are playing the Seal League, you get to find out what's in one of my Zendikar Rising packs because, I don't know, I haven't cracked one of these in a while. It feels kind of nice. So let's see what ends up being in here. And to clarify, for the League, what we're doing is uh, we're splitting a pseudo-chaos sealed where we're uh, doing two packs from some of the more recent uh, standard legal sets. So you've got Zendikar Rising, I think, Kaldheim, and Strixhaven. All right, let's start off this pack. We've got a nice full art planes, of course. Uh, that's, you know, always good to have. So we've got Expedition Champion. I'm just going to kind of breeze through these, see uh, if anything sticks out, which I do like in the aggressive red decks. Expedition Champion. Living Tempest, always underwhelming. It did occasionally kill me. Uh, Dreadworm, same. Grotag Bugcatcher, my boy. I first picked this card over most rares in the set, and it never does me dirty. Smite the Monstrous, meh, it's fine. Scale the Heights, I believe to be a trap. Zulaport Duelist for you... Dirty Rogues players. Uh, Resolute Strike, an embarrassing but serviceable combat trick. Vanquish the Week, solid removal. Cliffhaven Kite Sail, one of the, the snap equipments. Pretty good stuff. Sky Clave Plunder, it's the big five drop uh, so, uh, sorcery, lets you scry bunch, draw cards. Cleric of Lifespawn, the best two drop in the, in the black white life gain deck. We got a Kabira Takedown. And the rare is a Tajuru Paragon. That was the. One of the green 3-2 elf that had uh, all party types and had kicker that let you go find more stuff from your party. I don't know. It's looking like a, a pretty good spread in this pack. I do love a Cleric of Life's Bond. I love a Kabira Takedown. And those would pair eh, okay with other stuff in here. Nothing sign, uh, sticks out super mu- well in this pack. To be honest, if this was a, uh, a draft, I would consider the Grotag Bugcatcher. But I'd probably end up taking the Cleric of Life's Bond or the Kabira Takedown. Yeah, I think uh, Vanquish the Week is also potentially a pick here. Um, never really bad to pick up early removal. Not that if I recall that that was the best, like one of the better removal spells in the format, but, um, you know, it's always serviceable. Uh, Bugcatcher's up there for me as well. It was one of the better red two drops in the format, but the black-white deck was my favorite deck in the format, and that cleric is one of the linchpins for it. So mm-hmm. I would probably also take that. And uh, Kabir Takedown's a card that you're not really unhappy to take, but you're not really going to see too many of those clerics get passed unless you plant your flag in that in that, uh, in that that deck and cut it off early. So, yeah, I'm happy to take that here. Now, as for the Sealed League, oh, no, I hope I don't end up in black-white. That'd be such a shame, <laughs> man. Right. I had shed so many tears about that one. I got Vanquish the Week. I got a Resolute Strike. I got a Smite. I got a Dreadworm. Right. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> All right, on to our Teferi Tybalt. If you're new to the show or haven't heard this before, Teferi Tybalt is kind of our take at Roses and Thorns where Ben and I kind of highlight a high from our past week and a low from the past week, kind of just give you guys a little insight into what's been going on in our lives. So, Ben, take it away. Right, so this is my, I guess, my first full week off of school, or was that last week? That was last week? 
No, that's this week. I suppose that's this week. I got it. It feels like a blur, but uh, I'm finally done my first year of teaching, so that's pretty good. Uh, it was a lot. <laughs> I survived though, and now uh, time has no meaning for me until the fall. Uh, I'm going to do a lot of sitting around, play a lot of magic, see some friends I haven't seen in a while. Uh, so that's definitely a Teferi. One of those includes Zach. I actually got to see Zach in person over the weekend. We got to crack some uh, MH2. Uh, we got to go back and forth destroying each other with MH2 decks, uh, both of which uh, were totally legitimate decks and definitely not jank that we forced. Uh, right. More on that. More on that later <laughs> in the show. But uh, then we got to hang out with some friends that night, and it was uh, an all-around good time. So just kind of getting things done too. I'm moving in. I guess a month from the recording date and I'm starting to set up movers and swapping, you know, services and utilities and all that stuff. Just getting things done. Then my Tibble. Oh, man. So today uh, I have spent most of my day at the car repair shop where I had my car in to get the condenser fixed because my air conditioning didn't work. Now, those of you that are in the United States right now know that we are going through a little bit of a heat wave, uh, something like. I don't know. It feels over 100 degrees every day outside. Uh, so and far that's, this week, that has been the case, yeah? On the East Coast, it's even worse on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. We've got the humidity over here on the East Coast, so I don't know. I'd prefer the dry heat, but whatever. Things out there are just straight up melting. Yeah, 105 <laughs> so, degrees is 105 degrees. I don't care if it's humid or not. It sucks. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. So driving around with no air conditioning for the last few weeks has sucked, too. So I, it, it was this whole big process... They had to go contact the claims people, but the claims people weren't like picking up. And then the one person was on hold for a while. It was funny. I got there at 10 a.m. My phone died at 1 p.m. I was playing some magic, you know, drained my battery out. I was listening to some podcasts, that kind of thing. And it was another while before uh, they ended up coming to get me to say I was done, that they'd finally gotten through the claims and all that good stuff. So it turned out by the time I actually got to my car, it was like nearly 4 p.m. And I didn't even realize it. I thought after my phone died, I thought I was there for like an hour. But I was telling Zach before the show, I think watching Dr. Phil just just messes with time uh, <laughs> in a bizarre way. I think it's, it, I don't know, something, something time dilation due to the high velocity of your brain while watching CBS t television. <laughs> right. But it was, uh, it was gross. Uh, not a fun experience. And my phone was dead, so I couldn't even work on the show notes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a bummer. That sucks. I, it's never never a good thing to go through like car troubles. It's never fun. But uh, I feel like there's always something extra on top of whatever the normal car trouble you might be having is. It's like either trying to get it fixed is an extra pain for whatever reason. That part that happened to break on your car is only made like twice a year, and they are never going to be able to get it, and you know, like yeah. all that kind of stuff. So. Hey, at least he well, got uh, back and, and they got it fixed. It's true. I will say uh, I did get my revenge. They, this place had complimentary snacks and I just wiped them out. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Anyway, what's up with you? Uh, yeah, so for me, this week kind of marks we're just getting into July, right? We're, we're at the end of June here. And uh, for me, that means that I need to start more seriously looking for a new apartment because my lease, so the lease I have now is technically up in September, but when I signed the lease, we got a couple of free months due to the length of the term that we signed. And so there's a, a nice little leeway we have where 
we're likely to be able to get an apartment before we have to move out of our current apartment, but still only pay one rent because we have one of those free months banked up. Mm -hmm. So it'll give us like a month to move basically is, is is the goal. Um, So we'll have a lot of time to get things from one apartment to the other um, and uh, would be great in that regard. So my Teferi is that apartment hunting is in full swing at the moment. We are looking pretty aggressively at different apartments. I've got one tour set up so far uh, next week and then um, I've got a couple more in the works. So, you know, hopefully we find something quick and um, meets all of our, you know, checks all of our boxes and all those sorts of things. Apartment hunting can be pretty, pretty rough. Um, my roommate is doing the same thing. His, him and his girlfriend are, are also apartment hunting as uh, we're all splitting and finally moving to different apartments, which is going to be weird because I've lived with, with uh, my roommate Mark for almost six years now. Yeah, that's true. So it's, it's going to feel weird. There. Yeah, it's going to feel weird not, not not to be a room away from him at all times. Um, but, you know, it'll be should be good. My wife and I are excited to to not have roommates. So but my tip is that I'm also apartment hunting. Um, you know, it can be can be rough and uh, I can be picky. So, you know, I'm just hoping that we find something quick and don't have to worry about extra moving costs like if we have all that extra time to move then it's unlikely we'll have to hire movers because we can you know every couple days just go run stuff over to the place and um, convenient yeah so we'll see how that goes all right on to our listener question of the week and this week we stumbled a little bit to pull the curtain back a little bit uh we answered all of our previously asked listener questions on last week's show and i forgot to remind everybody to ask us more for this show so uh, what we did was we took a little bit of feedback from our survey that we did get a few responses on. And one of those questions was, or actually one of the things that was suggested that we do more frequently was perhaps make either videos or podcast episodes and maybe both. We'll see, you know, how this is received. But um, to talk about how we analyze new cards, how we prepare for new formats, things of this nature, um, those first couple of weeks getting into a new format where we're still learning a lot about how the environment and the, the format itself is shaping out. So expect to see some more content on that as AFR comes out. But today we're going to talk a little bit uh, about how we analyze cards and and what we do a little bit to prepare at the end of a format going into a new format. So we've got a few different things. That's one of the things we'll be talking about. We'll also be talking about some AFR spoilers and a little bit on, on Modern Horizons 2. We didn't really spend time on a full episode with that. And neither Ben nor I did really any drafting in that format, so we don't have a whole lot to say, but we did have some fun with the set this past weekend, so we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. Right, so let's get right into it. How to analyze new cards. We're all seeing spoilers right now, and I want to kind of take a two-pronged approach. First, we're going to start off with the traditional analysis way of, of analyzing new cards. This is what I'd say... 99% of Magic players do. And th- these are just some heuristics that Zach and I have picked up through, I guess, our experience uh, learning new cards. I personally love pre-release. I know Zach does as well. It's some of our favorite ways to play just because it's such a uh, friendly, low-stakes environment, uh, but also with some competition sprinkled in, which sounds right up our alley. So uh, everyone's learning the cards. If somebody makes a mistake, let them take it back, whatever. But then uh, if you play, you know, the best and, and know the cards and use your uh, kind of leverage your experience and knowledge of the game, you'll come out on top. And uh, who doesn't like winning? Uh, so it's a good place to have fun and also maybe uh, score some packs or store credit or something like that. So to get you all prepared for potentially some in-person pre-release events for this set, uh, we want to talk about a few ways to analyze these new cards that are coming out. So first up, the card by itself. So if you see a new card, you're like, whoa, what's this? Let me read it. Uh, just read it. 
see what is immediately noteworthy about the card just by itself in a vacuum, nothing else compared to it. Sometimes mythics and alternate win cons can grab your attention and just scream, I'm playable, I'm game winning. Uh, think questing beast. I don't think anyone was debating <laughs> whether or not it would be, you know, playable when it was first printed, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody finished reading the card before it was printed <laughs> uh, between spoiler season and when they actually got it in their hands. But, um, yeah, some cards really do just scream out at you and say, like, I'm above rate, I'm uh, giving you more than what you're paying for in this case. And Quest and Beast is a perfect example of that. Four mana for all the text in the world and also a body that you're not upset with. It's like what you're expecting and then upside and upside and upside and upside. So those are the kind of things when, and as Ben mentioned, are typically found on mythics or these sort of build around the sort of alternate win con type cards where they're pretty in your face about how powerful they are in most situations. Uh, sometimes those alternate win cons can have little caveats to them, but a lot of the big, big flashy bomb mythic rares are, they're going to let you know that they're, they're playable. Yeah. So unless the context of the set is just, very bizarre usually if you see something bane slayer-esque you can say okay this is probably gonna be pretty good good to keep that in the back of my head uh if my opponent plays one in game one maybe uh consider saving removal for it in game two that type of thing just know that there are bombs in the set and those are going to be there so the second kind of level up that was the card by itself well how about compared to similar cards uh you can see a card and say well is this card similar to anything that i already know about is it a combination of several existing cards? So Saffron Olive does a great job of this in his spoiler discussion videos. Whenever there's a new Planeswalker spoiled, he what he does is specifically looks at each uh, loyalty ability and compares it to a card to kind of gauge the mana worth of that card. So, for example, if the if a Planeswalker has like a, a minus two that makes two one one tokens, you'd say, oh, well, that's like raise the alarm. Raise the alarm is usually worth around two mana. Let's see how good that really is or something like that. So uh, that's one way of analyzing these new cards. For example, uh, if you see a, a creature, you could go and compare it to other similar creatures. There's a new white dragon, the name of which I don't even remember yet. It's like icing death. Yeah. I, yeah icing death. Tasty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, icing death. Uh, it's a four, it's a, sorry, it's two white, white for a four, three with flying and vigilance. And then it has some nonsense about dying into an equipment or whatever. Uh, but there are other creatures with that, that, right. There's yeah. uh thinking way back. Uh, there was a uh, Gisela blade of gold knight. Yes. Or no, that's the, no, hold on. That's the, that's the good one. I'm talking about the Eldrazi fied one. The, it was a four mana four, three with, uh, flying. I think that one had, uh, lifelink and first strike rather than vigilance, but it was a solid playable. Any kind of four mana, four power flyer is going to be pretty good. Another more recent one uh, is Legion Angel, uh, of course, from uh, ZNR, which has spent quite a bit of time in my sideboards. I love playing that in my mono white standard decks. So I don't know. If you see a card with some stats, think about how it compares to other similar cards. Uh, especially when you're talking about the common limited archetypes. So, for example, the white combat trick or the common blue counterspell with the ability of the set tacked on. Think about how good those tend to be and then think about, well, uh, does this seem better or worse than, say, I don't know, straight up uh, dissolve or something like that. Right, and... At the moment, we're looking at individual cards, comparing them to other individual cards from previous formats. And we've we've talked about this on the show a few times. We've seen recently that they've been 
uh, Watsy's been very, very ready to print a cheap creature in blue that has flash, and when it ETBs, it gives minus one or minus two power to some creature. Right. right? We had Burag Befuddler, we had Zulaport Duelist, uh, there was one in Kaldheim, which the name escapes me at the moment, um, but we had, we've had them. Like, that, that's been something we've seen pretty much every set for the last year. And mm. so I'm expecting we'll probably see one like that in, in AFR as well. And so you can kind of think uh, it, that you can take that and move it a step further. And instead of just looking at those cards in a vacuum, when you see a card that fits an archetype that you are are familiar with, something that is like, oh, this is the, as Ben mentioned, maybe the blue commons counterspell for this set. It's something that we see a lot and we're used to seeing them. How good was this the last time I saw it? And then you can kind of take uh, the format that you found it in into context and say, well, it was good in this particular format. And why was it good there? Well, that format was really slow. So counter spells were actually pretty decent. Okay, is this now as I'm seeing new cards come out for this new format as they're being spoiled, kind of take stock and think, is this going to is this shaping up to be a slower format? Maybe this counter spell will actually be decent. And you can kind of adjust your your card evaluations that way as well by taking old format knowledge and trying to apply it to the new format as you see all these new cards coming out. Right. So the next thing you can do is analyze the card within the context of the set. So how will this card fare in the limited meta of this specific set? Uh, it's a good idea to see how power and toughness align because this requires you to know the meta of the set, which is really hard to gauge before uh, actually playing it. Sometimes you can get hints, though, just from looking at the cards. So I like to look at power and toughness of creatures. Just shut up looking at what the power and toughness are of uh, cards in the set and seeing what it tends to be. If every single card in the set has higher power than toughness, it might be kind of aggressive. Things might want to be attacking. These cards might be at best when they're attacking. If everything has more toughness than power, well then these cards might be best when they are being defensive and you might have to find other ways to leverage to get in damage or win the game. So for example, in Ixalan, uh, Sun-Crested Terran, that was the 5-mana 2-5 flyer, and it had Vigilance if you had another dinosaur. Uh, it could block nearly every creature in the format, and most of them it would eat. So this led to the entire archetype of blue-white kind of being dedicated to big butts, controlling the board, uh, preventing you from dying, and then eventually drawing into your finisher, whatever it was. So... By looking for similar stats to that, we could kind of gauge, well, maybe this format would also allow me to do something similar. And spoiler alert, I'm kind of seeing that. Uh, more on that later when we talk about specific cards. But another way that you can do this is with two drops. The two drops in a format are pretty important to see, well, is this format full of two drops that are going to kill me in three turns? Or are the two drops kind of just two mana two twos? So, uh, for example, in Amonkhet... I would I would bet good money that the average power of two drops attacking on turn three was usually above two. Like on average, their power was probably you know two point two or something like that. But then in some slower sets, uh, maybe I don't know Kaldheim, I would wager that the average attacking two drop had closer to under two power. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm running some numbers in my head. I'd have to actually crunch these to find out. But uh, I have a funny feeling that. Uh, this set, I don't know, we don't have, without knowing all the two drops yet, it's hard to say. But once they come out, maybe we can start looking at that. A set with a lot of like two mana three ones will tend to be a little bit more aggressive. Yeah, for sure. And that kind of like li leads into sort of what you're talking about with um, higher power versus higher toughness, things like that. But two drops are so pivotal because of that timing aspect. Uh, turn two is very important in limited games if you 
are seeing tons of powerful two drops come down that are that are going to hurt you really quickly and you don't have good two drops that are going to defend you're going to start taking a lot of damage really quickly and uh you'll have you'll be on the back foot much much faster than than in a format where your two drops are kind of heavier on the backside and and not really not really getting in the red zone too often Mm -hmm. thinking back to dominaria a lot of the the red two drops were jokes uh and you could reasonably without red there to kind of be the fun police uh from what the the games that i remember of dominaria you could often start your curve on turn three without worrying too much and sometimes you were starting your curve with like a vanilla two three or something (laughs) shout out to you uh what was it talarian wizard talarian scholar something like that but uh so once you know the set's context, then you can start to analyze the cards a little better. Now, just one little note. Um, you should also analyze the card within the context of the format if you're interested in Constructed. This doesn't matter too much for, for Limited, but right now a good example of that is, uh, does this new card pass the Bone Crusher test? Does it have two toughness? And, God, they printed like a Mythic 5-2 dragon with all these other abilities, and, and all I'm thinking is like, that thing dies to Bone Crusher, doesn't it? But, Eldrain doesn't rotate out with this set release. It does. does it? it does. Oh, it does. Oh, thank fairly God. Fairly certain good. it does. Okay. I'm not a big Never constructed player, but I'm fairly certain it's rotating. Yeah. I'll be honest. I haven't touched standard in weeks. Uh, I think today was the first time I, I wanted to. Limited has just been so good recently. I've been just wanting to come back to Strixhaven or this new cube or Dominaria flashback. I, I haven't really wanted to just <laughs> jam a bunch of dumb adventure creatures look it was fun for a while i played my fair share of of teamer clover but that was like two years ago <laughs> i got sick of it back then uh, i'm ready for rotation and i'm honestly pretty excited to see what comes next for standard but anyway that's just a little small note uh, think about what the most played spells in standard are or modern or whatever format you're interested in and see how the cards fare against those most played spells yeah there are also a few other things you can do to kind of ease into learning a new set uh one thing that's very important early on is to learn what things your opponents can be doing at instant speed learn the combat tricks learn what cards have flash these things will save you big time in games early on in the format when your opponents aren't already memorizing those things so uh you know maybe it's keeping up a list there's usually and i i honestly can't remember the user who tends to post these but there is an individual at least on reddit and twitter who uh, tends to post um all in one graphics of like the instant speed threats, whether they're flash or, mm. or combat tricks or think counter spells, even um, also learn all the common removal spells. And when you say common specifically, because those are the, obviously the most common ones that you'll run into, but it doesn't hurt to know all the uncommon ones in rares as well, but definitely learn the commons. Those will help a lot. And also take advantage of the, the time spacing between spoilers. You know, they only release so many cards a day. So take advantage of that to learn the cards themselves uh, as as are coming in small chunks rather than you know waiting until the full set's out sometimes that can be a little overwhelming to to try to learn the entire set at one time so maybe take advantage of that that spacing right now on to the second method of card analysis vector theory you know i gotta shout out vector theory here it is uh, i want to say becoming our thing and i'm excited to get back into it so I think this is what, uh, well, I said before, 99% of players would use the other way. I think uh, now naming this vector theory, we can spearhead the 1% they're gonna, that are going to uh, do this. Well, it's nice to be part of the 1% for once. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'd say something that I'm going to start doing now that we have vector theory and we have these new cards, as they've been spoiled, I've been asking myself, what is this card's vector? 
So when this card is at its best, when this card is broken, when you're playing this and you feel like you're getting away with something, what does your deck look like? What does your board state look like uh, to make best use of this? What direction is it? And then, of course, how good is it in that direction? So let's take a look at a few of the spoilers that we've seen so far. First of all, uh, I want to take a look at Shesra Death's Whisper. This is two black green for a 1-3. It's a legendary human elf warlock. So what's that, a half elf? Half elf, yeah. Zach knows much more about D&D than I do, so he's going to be spearheading the, the flavor town for, for this go-around, well, I I'm think. I'm excited. Now, this isn't uncommon, so it looks like we're getting another set full of uncommon legends, which, honestly, this has been a good change. I've liked that they've been doing this, printing these signpost uncommon legends. Fun for Commander, fun for uh, Brawl, I suppose, <laughs> and uh, fun for gameplay. So this is a four-mana 1-3, and it's a legend. So already I'm a little bit scared, but let's read it out. So it has Bewitching Whispers, which uh, this is italicized text, but that's just for flavor, it seems. Yeah, essentially what they're doing in AFR is anytime a, a creature or a, a, an artifact or an enchantment or basically any spell at all in the entire format has some sort of ability, they're giving them names to kind of more or less say rather than tell, say rather than show the flavor of the ability they're trying to get off so mm -hmm. in this case yeah bewitching whispers is sort of that italicized flavor name for the ability which i kind of like because it lets you shortcut you know what you're saying if you're like playing in paper you can say like uh you know these aren't activated actually so uh on this card it's kind of not a great example of that but there are some that have activated abilities that are um, you know, there are a couple of instances that are modal that, you know, you choose one of the two options and it'll be really nice to be able to say like, oh, I opened the, th the left door and like you, your opponent knows what you're talking about. And that's like the ability. Right. So I are these like D&D spells like is Bewitching Whispers an actual spell from D&D? As far as I know, Bewitching Whispers is not, but a lot of them in the format, like a lot of the, the words they've decided to use as names are spells or otherwise cool. actions that like a player might take with their character or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's sick. So, Bewitching Whispers, when Shesra Death's Whisper enters the battlefield, target creature blocks this turn if able. And then she also has Whispers of the Grave. At the beginning of your end step, if a creature died this turn, you may pay two life if you do draw a card. Sweet. Yeah, so, let's think great. about the ideal way to play this. I'm thinking you want to curve out something like a 3-mana a 3-3 three three into this. So, you, you have your 3-mana three 3-3, three, you untap, you play Shesra, you attack, uh, you, you say maybe target their like three drop. Maybe it's a two, three or something. Uh, they're forced to block your three mana, three, three. And then you pay two life and draw a card. See, you forced, you kind of uh, destroyed one of your opponent's creatures. Granted, you, you do have to pair this with a larger creature in order for that to happen. But in that way, it's kind of like a ravenous chupacabra. A little bit. So it builds your then, own ravenous chupacabra, sure. Right. And then you can pay two life and draw a card. And you can, and then that's not just this turn, that's any turn. Uh, at the beginning of your end step, if a creature died this turn, you may pay two life if you do draw a card. You can't do that forever. You might want some life gain to, to offset that. But what kind of deck would you, you want to have this in? Yeah, so also one, one more thing to just kind of note about that, that Whispers of the Grave ability. Uh, it is anytime a creature, it's at your end step, but it's if a creature died. So it's opponent's mm. creatures or your own. Uh, nice little bit of insurance, I guess, if you happen to, to you know, get a block in, like you mentioned, maybe a 2-3 blocking a 3-3, three, three, and they happen to have a pump spell, and your creature dies, you're at least still given the ability to pay that life and draw the card, so that's pretty nice, uh, and anytime, you know, your opponent's using, like, sacrifice effects or something like that, you can still 
take advantage of that. Your own sacrifice effects you can take advantage of. So that's part of where I'd see this deck. Maybe if there is some sort of sacrifice reanimate kind of sub theme, it'd be kind of cool to, mm. to be able to slide this in there. Um, I would like to see if this green black color pair has any amount of readily available death touchers because that pairs really well with her top ability. Yeah. Uh, any kind of big creatures that are cheap, but maybe have other downsides or something that we can leverage that top ability for anything that lets us make sure that we are getting a creature dead with her top ability is where I'm looking to see this. So I'm feeling it's probably a slightly aggressive build, uh, the Golgari in, in some respects, because we want those bigger creatures early or they're going to be a lot of death touch. Mm, death touch would be sick. Yeah, so, like so probably mid-rangey, because, I mean, three power for three mana is pretty much what you expect to see. So we're going to see, I would expect, probably some mid-rangey stuff and hopefully some reanimator stuff. Mm. Agreed. I think this this card screams Cavs theory, cards that affect the board state, right? Uh, although it does pair kind of well with combat tricks, uh, given that, I don't know, if your opponent knows this is coming, they might leave a blocker back to be ready, and then you can kind of get them with this. So seems cool to me. Next up, Air Cult Elemental. This is four blue blue for a 2-5 flying elemental. It is Whirlwind when Air Cult Elemental enters the battlefield. Return up to one other target creature to its owner's hand. It's a pretty big mana war, but it does not pass the vanilla test. No, not at all. Six mana for a 2-5 flyer is yeah, not really where you want to be. It's nice that it attaches that little bit of tempo. You do get to bounce things. Uh, you also can bounce your own stuff if you have enter the battlefield effects to rebuy so maybe there's some form of weird baby blink or something going on i would doubt that that's actually where they're headed with this but that's an option um it is a common so i wouldn't expect a card like this to be terribly powerful uh two five does tell me that we're going to be able to be blocking some things pretty readily and it is a flyer which is big like having having a big big butt flyer in the air is is great to keep you from dying against any aggressive flyers this kind of is that pterodon you were you were mentioning, but it is more expensive and you know doesn't have quite the same abilities in effect. But maybe this will matter. I mean, the the tempo could be huge. So this seems like it's gonna want to be in a control deck that's doing its slow thing. Maybe a green blue deck that can ramp to get it out a little earlier than turn six. I won't expect to see this though in many decks. It doesn't seem that great. Uh, but the you know the tempo is tempo, and I, I just think six mana is a little much for this. Yeah, six mana is quite a bit, but if the format happens to be slow enough, then this might be just the stabilizer you need. I mean, I can imagine a lot of board states where this would just come down and immediately stabilize you. Right? Like yes. maybe bounce their bounce their uh, one four four flyer, and then they left like a two two flyer and some ground creatures that you already had locked up. This is really good at keeping you alive. So this pairs with other things that would extend you into the late game. Maybe if you're trying to get through that one last dungeon and you really need that, the 4-4 four four at the end. This will buy you at least a turn, uh, if not more. So it is expensive. I do think this is probably going to be pretty good, though, if the format happens to be slow enough. I guess we'll come back to that and, and see how it is. But look, Mana War is a good card. Adding a Mana War onto a huge flying body, it's something to keep an eye out for. Next card is Shortcut Seeker. This is three and a blue. It is a 2-5 human rogue. Whenever Shortcut Seeker deals combat damage to a player, venture into the dungeon. Yeah, so venture into the dungeon is a new ability, I want to say. It's a new bit of rules text that enables you to enter, enter the first room or advance to the next room of a dungeon. If you're not familiar with dungeons, we aren't covering them quite in this show, but definitely look to our format breakdown in, in I think, next week. Uh, 
where we will uh, kind of break down more about what those are. It's a valuable ability from what we've seen. Uh, hard to tell how much, you know, kind of to use that saffron olive uh, sort of telemetry that you were mentioning. Hard to tell how much to value this at from a mana perspective because the first room of every every available dungeon is like either gain one life or your opponent loses one life or you scry one, I think were the three options. Mm-hmm. So the first venture into the dungeon card you can read as either one of those three things, which isn't amazing. I mean, this is a four mana two five, which is doing the air cult elemental thing pretty well. I mean, it's going to stabilize you. And this is much more where I'd want to see the the mana cost on a card like this. Uh, it's a body that's going to come down early enough to be relevant. Not having flying might be a problem, so we'll see. But uh, venturing into the dungeon and it's weird because this is a this is a card where and we've seen them do this a lot. Like designers for magic cards tend to do this frequently. But it's a card that's defensively statted that wants to be attacking because its effect only triggers when it deals combat damage to a player. That makes me a little nervous. I would look for ways to maybe try to force this through, but most of the time I expect this is not going to be doing the thing, right? This is going to be a 2-5 that sits back and blocks most of the time. Yeah, it is a good blocker. I can imagine a board with like a few of these on either side and people just waiting and <laughs> waiting for things to happen. So I guess this is where we have to turn a little bit to set context. I noticed a an unblockable theme in blue. Mm-hmm. I think I saw two or three cards that involve not being able to block a certain creature. So who knows? Uh, who knows how this will end up faring with that. Now, like you mentioned, this card does want to deal combat damage to players, but that means your four drop is getting in for two damage. Right. So it's a little strange. Like, you're going to be getting to do the dungeon thing in that case, rather than killing him with damage. If this is just a four mana four four, you would just straight up kill your opponent, right? Long before you get to do any kind of dungeon stuff. But yeah. who knows? Maybe it sounds like Blue wants to be doing the dungeon thing, uh, v- venturing over and over again, maybe multiple times each turn. If you can give this unblockable somehow or evasion repeatedly, this is a way to kind of sweep through a dungeon uh, pretty reliably. And it, it is, you did take a little bit of risk while blocking this. If you put, say, like a bunch of blockers in front of it to, uh, to sort of like double block it down, you're opening yourself up for a combat trick. Right. So this thing does pair well with combat tricks because people will either try to block it with like a, their own 2-4 and then you can pump and, and take out their creature or they might try to go for like a mass block like I said uh, and then try to trade for it in which case you can maybe get a, a nice 2-for-1 or even better. So I don't know. Uh, I think this is indicative of a slightly slower format. Just look at these three cards that I happen to pick. 1-3, 2-5, 2-5. Now, this last one is a bit of a, a departure from that. This is Targnar, Demon Fang, Knoll. W- what exactly is a Knoll? Is it a gnome troll? Because no. that's kind of what uh, it looks like. Knolls are sort of, you can think of them like um, almost werewolves in that they're big, hairy, bipedal, sort of four-legged. I mean, they have arms, but they, they run on four legs sometimes. Uh, they're, they're, they're goblin-esque, like big hairy hobgoblins or something. It's a terrible explanation of them, but that's the best approximation I can give you without actually memorizing like background information on them. Fair enough. But this is red green for a 2-2 legendary creature. It's a knoll. It has pack tactics, uh, sorry, pack tactics, which I have noticed does show up multiple times on other cards. And I think it all has similar effects. Uh, whenever Targnar Demon Fang Null attacks, if you attack with creatures with total power 6 or greater this combat, that's like the pack tactics text from what I noticed, yes. attacking creatures get plus 1 plus 0 until end of turn. 
And it also has two red-green as an activated ability. Double Targnar's power and toughness until end of turn. This is a you know, pretty nice two-drop, but it still attacks as a two-drop for the first several turns of the game. At least the first, uh, the first turn on turn three attack with it. Probably on turn four as well. And then maybe turn five, it's attacking for with greater than two power. I mean, you do have that activated ability, which does prevent blocks, which means it's probably going to be getting in. But again, this is just going to be getting in for two the first several turns. Compare this to like, I don't know, Gustwalker uh, from back in Amonkhet. That was the, uh, what was it? Let me see here. Two mana, two one. And when you exert it, which means you tap and it doesn't untap in your next untap step, it gets plus one, plus two and gains flying until end of turn. So this was kind of like a two mana, two power creature that when you needed it to be, it was a three power creature. And that was, you know, pretty common. It turned out just being able to get that evasion was really important. And having that third power was crucial for end of the game against people that might be trying to stabilize. This thing, it doesn't have that ability to buff itself right away. And having it be an activated ability is much weaker. So if you just told me I wanted to play a shit up aggressive limited deck, I would take the one with a bunch of gust walkers over the one with a bunch of targnars, right? Uh, given the context of this format, it seems like well, look how how this matches up against Shortcut Seeker. Not great, right? Yeah. Well, so when I read this card, and to kind of go back to the way we evaluate cards, my first thought was Reckless Amplomancer. That's the most recent version of a similar effect we've seen, right? That was a yeah. I believe that was a two mana two two that you could pay four mana to pump it. Uh, double five, its, it was fine. Double its power and toughness. Now this Targnar. Imagine you play Targnar on two. You're probably playing another creature on three, and then on four, maybe you want to pump Targnar. Mm-hmm. But I just played a Shortcut Seeker. Even if you pump the Targnar, it's not going to kill the Shortcut Seeker unless you happen to have another creature around to get the pack tactics trigger. Right. So that feels kind of bad, but it is getting a lot of it's getting a lot of of uh, steam, I guess, out of your two drop. Like you're getting a decent amount of value out of your two drop. Though by then you've invested six mana and you're only dealing with my four drop. So that doesn't feel great. Yeah, this feels like it would be best. Well, let's again consider its vector. This really wants to hit that power six as fast as possible for that Lord ability, which is definitely strong. That's pretty powerful. And it could be even better when combined with stuff like pump spells or uh, larger, beefier creatures. But I'm starting to dig into the vector analysis of the set at this point. Seems like a lot of these cards want to be going a little slower. So it'll depend on just what kind of support this thing can get. If it can get this uh, pack that it seems to want in in order to uh, really get in there and and close up the game quick before people start doing these busted dungeon things. I mean, this thing, uh, I don't know too much about Knowles. But it doesn't look very interested in exploration or, uh, I don't know, discovering ancient artifacts. It looks like it's going to kill me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty typical for Knowles. Um, they, it's also worth mentioning these pack tactics cards do really well together. Anytime, oh, yeah. anytime you're doing a lot of them, I should say, from what we still haven't seen probably even half the set yet. So take this with a grain of salt. We'll talk about it more in our format breakdown. But it seems that a lot of these pack tactics cards do things globally they hit all of your creatures when they trigger their effect so if you have this another pack tactics creature that's giving like i don't know some form of evasion or maybe another plus one plus oh uh, maybe trample something like that 
you're suddenly turning on your whole board pretty quickly. And that's going to be a great way to kind of do the, you know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of some of the lore hold decks we've seen where they hit you like maybe for two or three damage over the course of the first four turns. And then suddenly their ample, their Lumimancer is like a 2020 and you're like, Oh, I'm dead. Yeah. You could even play two Targonars and then get both. No, no, can't do that. It's legendary. Yeah, you, should, you should try it. Uh, anyway, funnily enough, um, if you play a, a Tarask, that will uh, trigger pack tactics, <laughs> right? It's true. It will do that, yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's that much better than Targdor, though. <laughs> well, we'll get to that when we get to that. Well, that's right now. Let's talk about it. So anyway, just wrapping it up. Um, use vectors as you start to see these new cards. Think about what these cards have their best home in and uh, post about it in the Discord. The spoiler yeah. channel is uh, firing on full cylinders right now. Anyway, we, we next wanted to talk about some of our other favorite spoilers from the set. So let's just kind of bounce around. What are some things that you like from the set so far? Definitely have been enjoying the way they handled the flavor of a lot of the creatures. It's it's a mixed bag for me because there are a lot of creatures that I was like, oh, they hit the nail on the head with this one. And there are a lot where I was like, uh, this is underwhelming or this is different than I expected. I will say hats off for the dragon cycle. Every color gets a dragon. And in... Yeah. In... Uh, in D&D, there is a cycle of two different types of dragons. There are chromatic dragons, which are based on a particular color. And then there are metallic dragons, which are based on a metal. And each of the chromatic and metallic dragons have counterparts. The chromatic dragons are typically evil aligned, whereas the metallic dragons hmm. are typically good aligned. Um, in any case, Weird. I think from what I've seen, they're all, all the chromatics so far have been dragons. They've been flying 4-4s. Four but they also all have an effect, and each in D&D, each dragon has a specific type of breath weapon. Uh, so the green dragons, for instance, have poison breath. Black dragons have an acid breath. Red dragons have a fire breath. Things like that. So they've given some names to the abilities to kind of make those make sense within the context of, of magic. For instance, the green dragon here is a, a six-mana 4-4 four, four flyer with poison breath, which says when green dragon enters the battlefield until end of turn, whenever a creature an opponent controls is dealt damage, destroy it. So that, that feels pretty poisony. You know, you, you're hitting it with the thing and then it dies after the fact. Like that, that feels, that feels like it, it hits home. Um, I kind of like that they're naming all the creatures, just the name of the creature. They didn't try to like give it a weird different name. It's like this card is just called yeah. green dragon, which I think makes a lot of sense. And I kind of like that. The where I don't like this as like a flavor thing is what they've done with a lot of instants and sorceries. What they've done is the names of the cards reflect a bit of exposition that your DM might give you. You're not a fan of that? I don't like it because I I, I like it from like their attempt to do it, right? It, it I like that they tried. My problem is it feels weird in the context of I'm casting this spell and I'm targeting this thing with it, normally we would say, I'm going to Doomblade that creature, right? Yeah. In this case, I have to say, I'm going to, you found the villain's lair, this creature. Oh my. And that wee just woo, feels... Grammar police. <laughs> that, fa that it just feels weird, and I, I don't like that. But I do like that they tried, and they're implement like they actually found a way to get that part of the game, that part of D&D, &D, into magic, because that is a huge part of, of D&D. &D. Like, the DM's instructions and exposition and storytelling and everything is huge. Those cards also all have choices on them, which feels awesome. Like almost all of them are modals because oh, yeah. it's like you've gotten to this point. Now what are you going to do? And that's usually yeah. how DMing works. It's like you you tell the characters that's here this is where you find yourselves 
now what? Like you determine what your character does and how you're going to affect the story from here on out. So I, I do really like that. I just think that it feels weird within the context of magic for the naming conventions. Uh, I think it's pretty silly. It's pretty fun. They've been doing this for a little bit. Think to uh, to Eldraine, where they had they had so tiny and they had didn't say please, which I thought were just pretty comedic inclusions. Sure, sure, but it, in those set in those those instances, right? I can say now your creature's so tiny, or no, you didn't say yeah. please. Like those those kind of work. I feel like if just saying like you found the villain's lair. I, maybe it'll work. Maybe once we see the rest of the set, it'll actually make sense and it'll work. And when I know the effects of the cards better, it's going to actually work. But I don't know. When I read them at first, I was yeah. like, that feels weird. Uh, save it for Flavor Town, dude. I think it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I like the Green Dragon a lot. That's one that I put in as one of my favorites. So I didn't know that. So let me get this straight. The, the color aligned dragons are all just evil. Yeah. But then the metallic ones, which I don't think are, are, are they, would they be considered uh, like artifact creatures or are they still like creatures? No, they're still creatures. They just have, they just have scales that resemble a metal in color. Oh, um, interesting. I, I, and we saw the adult gold dragon, indeed. which has been a pretty interesting one. In fact, one of my tweets about it is taken off. Uh, oh, <laughs> I haven't bit. seen that. Uh, it was a reply to one of Saffron Alves, but. Oh, I did see uh, that. I, I didn't realize that it took off. Yeah, it's uh, moderately. I'm basically famous. I gotta go. Actually, I gotta <laughs> uh, something about. Uh, they want me to to like put my handprint on like the Hollywood Walk of Fame or something like that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> but forgetting the 30 likes on a tweet about a magic card. Anyway, it's a that was that one. Three red white for a four three flying vigilance haste. Oh no, sorry, flying lifelink haste. I believe I that's the case. Yes. Um, cool card, but. I mean, it's a five mana creature that dies to bolt or bolt similar abilities, I guess, rip apart. Yeah, it's a little uh, underwhelming. It? That's another. So this kind of segues into something. I mentioned some parts of the flavor aspects of, of D&D that they brought to the game that I really like. That card kind of starts to segue into ver uh, an area that I don't like. And that is there is a bit of a problem with magic in that uh, as it pertains to correlating with D&D &D, mm -hmm. in that there are a lot of ways that the game can be unbalanced in, in MTG. If you make a creature too high power or you give it too many abilities, it either has to be ridiculously expensive so it, it is fair to be casted when it can be casted or it's incredibly overpowered and shouldn't be printed, right? Mm -hmm. In D&D, &D, there's no such power gap ceiling sort of situation. There's no such balancing act. If you're too weak to fight a thing... You have to go get more powerful before you can go fight the thing. And that means you divert the story in some way, shape, or form. Maybe your characters come close to dying. Some characters might actually die when they fight this thing. And then maybe the villain takes mm -hmm. off and does some other thing. In the context of D&D, dragons are some of the more power some of the more powerful entities. They're definitely defeatable by by adventuring parties, but gold dragons in particular are among the most powerful of them. And one way that D&D differentiates power level between dragons in particular is age you'll have like a regular green dragon and then you'll have also a young green dragon or a whelp green dragon or something like that or an adult green mm -hmm. dragon or an ancient green dragon and that kind of gives you know a way to kind of specify the power level of these things so an adult green dragon or sorry an adult gold dragon should be more powerful than a green dragon like it just should and it's not really 
in this case. Interesting. So you would like to see like all the adult dragons be a bit better than all the conventional dragons. And then I assume we'll be getting some babies or something like that. Those should all be smaller than the normal ones. Yeah, I mean, that that would make sense. That's at least how it, how it is in D&D, so I would have expected them to translate that well. Maybe we'll find out that's the case, and the adult green, the adult gold dragon actually is better, but it just doesn't feel like it, it's going to be, and that that's a little bothersome. And that the, the card that I saw first that kind of tipped me off to this potentially being a problem for this set, for those who are diehard D&D fans, and I wouldn't call myself that, but I, I do quite enjoy the game, the Tarasque. Tarask is a creature in D&D that has a lot of power. It's not necessarily the most, like, overwhelming or, like, completely ridiculous creature in the game. There are certainly more intelligent things that you can fight. But it's a big, dumb—I mean, it's not actually dumb. It's it, by, by D&D standards, it is still quite smart of a creature. But it has a ton of abilities that involve, like, being able to deal double damage to structures, uh, being able to swallow players— um, negating magic which they they fit into this card a bit they did let it fight creatures when it attacks so you kind of get the the double aspect double damage aspect in it does have ward if you cast it so it can kind of block magic effects in some way shape or form it's a big creature it's a 10 10 so by magic standards it is a big creature but it feels really underwhelming so it's not necessarily that they translated it poorly it just feels underwhelming for a creature that's like near the epitome of like things that adventuring parties can take down within the the scope of a campaign. So I don't know. I just feel like they could have done better and, and that feels bad. And like one card that I really like from a magic perspective, but again, kind of don't like from a D and D perspective is dragon turtle. Dragon turtles are also creatures that are supposed to be relatively difficult to take down. Very intelligent, uh, large. Um, you can see even in the art of that card, it's, it's far bigger than the ship that it's attacking overall. Like think, Think like uh, lion turtles from Avatar. Like they're massive, very intelligent beings. A lot of dragon turtles are very greedy, so they they attack uh, they attack ships pretty frequently. But this is a three mana three five, which in magic terms is like what the heck a three mana three five. This one also has flash, and it has a cool ability in that it taps itself and a, another creature, and they don't untap. So it's like kind of giving you a drawback because you're thinking three three mana three five. It has to have some kind of downside, and it's got flash, so that's an upside. So it's got to have some some downside. And I like the way they've designed this from a magic perspective, but it doesn't feel like a dragon turtle to me. Yeah, I, like I said, I'm the D&D expert. These designs feel fine to me, but I, I can definitely see why a lot of them are not quite measuring up. I guess that they really had to include a lot of these bigger, more fantastical things. And somewhere along their gradient of like not powerful to powerful, they wanted to include more D&D powerful things than some probably some of those had to get scaled down relatively into the magic mid-power zone to be able to be included at all. Otherwise, everything would just be like random peasants and adventurers running around and then a few mythic dragons up at the top. So uh, from the non-expert perspective, I'd say it's fine, but I don't know. From what I've heard about the Tarrasque, it's like an Eldrazi-level threat. And this thing, I don't know, it dies to a 1-1 death touch. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem. Like, I don't know that I would say it's necessarily an Eldrazi-level threat, but it's extremely powerful, and like a level one player character is not able to take down. Even a party of player one player, level one player characters can't take down a Tarrasque. A party of level eight or nine player characters generally can't take down a Tarrasque. And to, for those who aren't familiar, eight or nine is kind of like the mid to late point of a lot of campaigns. Like you max out at level twenty, but it's a lot of a lot of campaigns don't make it to level twenty. Mm. Um, 
by level nine or ten, you're like starting to hit some pretty. You're you're starting to hit your stride as far as your character's power level, and like a lot of a lot of player like adventuring parties can't take down a Tarask at that point. So the fact that this dies to like silly stuff, like you said, kind of feels awful. Well, anyway, on to the, some of the more uh, uplifting things. It looks like they brought back equipment, uh, specifically uh, red-white equipment. Some of them we've seen don't have the snap uh, attachment, but some of them, it seems that they do. When they ETB, they attach to a creature, which I really loved from Zendikar Rising. So we've got Dueling Rapier. It's a one red mana, just one red. It's a, an equipment. It has flash. When it enters the battlefield, attach it to target creature control. Equip creature gets plus two, plus oh, and it has equip four. Sweet. Yeah, seems seems pretty solid. That's another aspect that there's like some really cool things and some really not so cool things. This one is a, a you know a dueling rapier. The effect is great from a magic perspective. Like a one mana combat trick that sticks around is pretty great. Um, but then you see a card. There's a card called plus two. I think it's plus two mace. <laughs> yeah. And in D and D, a plus two weapon is a huge. It's a huge upgrade. In magic, it gives your creature plus two plus two, which is like sure, I guess. So <laughs> yeah, it's just right, like, not everything will translate perfectly. It's just unfortunate because I feel like they they took liberties with cards they shouldn't have, like the dueling rapier. Like just a plain rapier in in D and D isn't all that amazing. I don't know how you make this much worse to give it the effect to to make the plus two mace feel better. But I think they took they took strength liberties with cards they shouldn't have and then had to dial it back on other cards they shouldn't have. I, I don't know. Let's talk about treasure chest. So this is a three mana artifact that I just think is the funniest thing. Yeah. So you pay for sacrifice treasure chest, roll a d20. So we've got a whole bunch of things going on here. First of all, treasure chest, I assume those are all over the place in D&D, right? I mean, that's that's the game, right? The whole the whole premise of D&D is you're going through the story you've got a party of characters who are up to shenanigans and you're doing things for maybe your town that you walk through or whatever but at the end of the day you want some loot like that's what that's what you're after you want some money you want some loot so yeah I mean the treasure chests are all over the place now we've got a d20 and I saw this caused a whole controversy on magic twitter too d20s come in a few different types they come in the randomized ones which i think D players tend to use and then they come in the spin down form which you know magic gives out during pre-release kits and that kind of thing and i heard for this one they're actually giving out non-spin down ones in Correct. kits uh the the normal ones people will say that i don't know if you're like good you can get a spin down to roll a certain way or that because of the indentations in the sides they're perfectly weighted I saw other people saying that only casinos have perfectly exactly weighted dice, so it doesn't actually matter too much. I don't know. I, I've always just used my spin downs as like a rolling thing if I needed it for whatever purpose, right? Yeah, so I actually saw a post by Frank Karsten discussing this. Oh, boy. Brought in the big guns. One, exactly. He is one who I will take his word to the bank when it comes to probabilities and statistical outcomes. True. What he said was that the spin down d20s are not st- statistically significantly weighted in any other way like a to start off d20s are not like weighted from the factor obviously they have a weight to them but they are not intentionally weighted in any capacity they're made out of resin however the resin is weighted is how they're weighted most yeah. companies maybe maybe like commercial companies that make them do weight them in a certain way but like there are plenty of people who make their own dice those are not weighted in any particular fashion the D20s we're getting in typical pre-release sets, not weighted in any particular fashion. The difference is the numbers are in sequential order rather than randomized around the, the die. 
Long story short, Frank Carson said that a uh, spin down D20 isn't significantly different if you actually roll it. A lot of folks will just drop a die, a, a D20 when playing D&D, and because the numbers on it are actually randomized, it it is still a relatively random outcome. Whereas with a spin down, if you just drop the die, there's a far greater chance that you will land on a higher number or lower number, depending on how you were holding it when you dropped it. Uh, but if you actually like roll them, there's no real st- statistical significant difference. Nice. So I've got here in my hand a giant foam squeezy ball D20. Uh, as you can see, uh, Zach is seeing this right now. It's it's for, you know, uh, when you crit fail and you really just got to like let out a bunch of rage. Uh, it is a spin down, so I'll have to make sure that I <laughs> roll it properly. So long story short, use it every one. But back to the card. Uh, it has pay four mana, generic, uh, sacrifice treasure chest, roll a d20. So then it has these kind of... Uh, outcome determinations based on what you roll. So if you roll a one, it says trapped, which is hilarious. You lose three life. So that's the equivalent of the the critical fail. If you roll d20, you just get super screwed. You roll a one. In D&D, from what I know, something bad happens. So if you try to like, I don't know, roll to slice a dragon's neck off and you roll a one, you'll instead like trip over a rock and like impale yourself or something like that, right? Yeah, it depends on the DM. Some DMs are more lenient with with natural ones than others are. Um, some some DMs will make like you roll a natural one when you're when you're rolling an attack roll, you you break your weapon, and now like for the rest of the fight, you've got to figure out how to fight without a weapon. Uh, mm. The baseline though is that in D and D, almost in every situation, a natural one is an auto fail for whatever it is you're trying to do. So that's kind of uh, leveraged here. And then the next few steps, you've got t- from two to nine, you create five treasure tokens. So, you know, that's that's something from a 10 to 19, you gain three life and draw three cards. And then on a 20, a natural 20, and this is the opposite effect in D&D of a natural one, a natural 20 is an auto success. And depending on what you're actually trying to do, may have some other benefits associated with it. On a 20 for treasure chest, you search your library for a card, any card. If it's an artifact card, you may put it onto the battlefield. Otherwise, put that card into your hand, then shuffle. Mm. That's wild. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah. So two through nine, you really don't want, right? It's kind of like a mana doubler. This would let you, uh, I guess, have one turn of like Fires of Invention-esque gameplay where you just get to play two things, like two four drops or something like that if it's the next following turn, or play something else that very turn that you did it. But gaining three life and drawing three cards, that's more your value, but then you're not getting any mana back from it. I don't know, this will probably be fine. And then if you happen to hit a 20, I guess you get the tutor. In limited, you kind of almost would rather hit 10 to 19 than the tutor, though. I mean, unless they're printing like a, I don't know, an Inkwell Leviathan of some sort in this set. I haven't seen any artifacts that I want to sneak in, though. But The flavor there is like the treasure chest has some cool new weapon in it. You know, from a D and D perspective, you're like, ah, oh, I upgraded my armor, or I upgraded my weapon, or just something. The one you wanted, right? Yeah, and you know that's cool. I think you're right from a D and D from a from a limited perspective. You're probably going to generally want to draw those cards. Um, yeah, but you know, there's something to be said here. This is a three mana card that does nothing until you pay four more mana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm first picking this one. A little loose. Yeah. Next Last up, but not least. Last but not least, I wanted to mention Eliwick Tumblestrom. Now, this is not a D&D character from what I'm aware of, but uh, she's very clearly a bard. I mean, all the art we've seen with her on it so far is just hilarious to look at. From what I'm getting, she's this happy-go-lucky, 
a minstrel of some sort with a frog companion that sits on her shoulder, and she seems to inspire the local woodland creatures to do some kind of jamboree. I don't know. I love it. Whatever's happening here, it's great. So she is two green green for a four loyalty legendary planeswalker type Eliwick. Her plus one is venture into the dungeon, uh, which, you know, enters the first room or advances to the next room. More on that in our set breakdown, but just having that alone as a repeatable venture effect is really versatile for the first activation and then seems to be able to power you pretty quickly through the rest of the dungeons. Her minus two, look at the top six cards of your library. You may reveal a creature card from among them and put it into your hand. If it's legendary, you gain three life. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. All right, she can make friends. Pretty cool. Her minus seven is you get an emblem with creatures you control have trample and haste and get plus two plus two for each differently named dungeon you've completed huh weird yeah uh trample and haste we've seen something like that before it's kind of like a little acroma's memorial type thing so that alone is pretty good yeah like very green planeswalker but then getting plus two plus two for each differently completed differently named dungeon you completed i mean i assume by the time you ultimate her you've probably made it through a dungeon she's not the only thing venturing there's other cards in the set that venture so i don't know you ultimate even if you take her up to eight and then ult and you get that emblem and then you start taking her up again, then you can, I guess, complete the one dungeon if you hadn't finished it. And then that emblem would then give all the things plus two plus two. And then you can keep venturing with her. I don't know. This seems pretty cool. I'm interested to see where she falls. And I feel like she'll be a pretty solid limited card. Yeah, I, th- I assume that's how that works. That like the emblem will tick up the power and toughness buff if you complete dungeons after the fact. I, I would hope that it's not like you it, it checks only when this ability resolves and then that's it for the whole emblem because that would mean the floor on this ultimate is give your creatures trample and haste which is fine but certainly nothing to write home about but the ceiling on this is trample haste and plus six plus six so absurd obviously last but not least we wanted to chat a little bit about modern horizons 2 we didn't really even put any notes for this we just had a good time Kraken some MH2 packs and wanted to talk about it. So first of all, um, we had a pretty good box. We didn't, we couldn't get a draft booster box. Those things are just sold out everywhere. I don't know. Uh, we did manage to get set boosters, which I think was our first time really cracking those too much. But I don't know. It paid off. We got quite a few rares, a bunch of cool alt arts, the uh, the nice extended borderless ones, some of the retro frames, some sweet foils. What we get like six fetch lands. Yeah, I think it was six fetches. We opened a Ragavan, which was pretty sweet. We opened two Grists. One was foil and extended art. There were a handful of other things, but those were kind of the money cards we opened. We did make the value of the box back, which felt great. And then we mm. we basically, what we did, we did a super sealed of sorts where <laughs> Ben and I, we so a box has 36 packs, right? And we cracked, I want to say it was two sealed pulls each plus a pack or something like that. Well, well, hold on. We started with one sealed pool, and yes. already it's off. It's a little loose because the packs are kind of seeded. Right. So yes. A yeah. pack will tend to have like a bunch of blue black cards in it, and then a blue black uncommon. So we had to account for that. Uh, but we figured, hey, maybe let's just try it. See what happens. So we each cracked six of e- or like each cracked six packs, and then we were like, hmm, we don't know what we're building. You want to crack six more? <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah, because both of us add them. Both of us looked at our pools and we're like, do we even have a deck here? Like. <laughs> like can either of us make an actual magic the gathering deck with the cards that we opened and we both looked at each other and kind of shrugged and we're like want to open another pool <laughs> <laughs> so then we had the super pool of 12 packs each and that kind of negated the whole seated aspect of it by that point we had enough stuff we were able to make some pretty sweet things and i, I think our decks were pretty sick 
Uh, I played Jund Storm, and it performs almost exactly as I expected it to. When it worked, it was freaking fantastic. Something like the best I probably had was well, like 30 power on turn six or something. I made a bunch of 4 4 beasts, and yeah. suspend really helped. Yeah, there was one game where you, I think you went turn one or two soul talisman and then turn three or four you played like four spells into a chatter storm and it was like yeah okay all right this is a thing and it was hilarious because but while we were opening packs i think i opened i opened one of the other storm cards that was kind of garbage one of the other green garbage storm cards and i was like why'd mm. they even put storm in this set <laughs> and ben's over there like secretly trying to put together this like uh this this storm deck and it actually worked pretty well i played a shenanigans grixis list um that that played it, it was just tokens like it just wanted it wanted food it wanted treasures it wanted squirrels it wanted crabs Sultai, right sorry yes what did i say grixis yeah yeah it was Sultai. it was Sultai. no red Sultai. yeah yeah but back uh, to it. It was sweet. It was the sweet day. The first game, the first game we played was hilarious because Ben was like trying to sort of get off the ground and do his thing, and I was just like tokens and tokens and tokens and tokens, and he was like, was "Oh, junk crawlers." Was that the card? Uh, it was uh, junk winder, I think. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, junk junk winder, which up. taps down creatures anytime a token enters the battlefield, and then I had uh, one of the cards that um, when you cast something for. Uh, mana value four or greater you, it makes tokens i had uh the simic artifact that gives all your tokens flying i also had a, a glitter was it glimmer baron yeah oh, yeah oh my god glimmer baron absolutely wrecked my game plan game one i was hoping to like make a bunch of stuff attack in i had a bunch of squirrel tokens and he just has this one two but like three clues two treasures a couple of squirrels. Uh, a handful, yeah, some squirrels. And I'm like, that thing is functionally an 8-9 or bigger. Yeah, I think at one I point I got it up attack. to like a 12-12 function, like an yeah. effective 12-12. Yeah, so I, I couldn't attack even with my like 2-2s and 4-4s and whatnot. Uh, I, I just got destroyed by that little Atog type thing. And it was it was pretty impressive. So tokens definitely uh, definitely earned its spot uh, in, in MH2. Well, that does it for us this week. Thanks so much for listening and walking through uh, sort of how we approach a new set. Hopefully you got some entertainment out of our discourse on MH2 and D&D as magic set. Um, if you're interested in talking more about those things, definitely check out the Discord where we have a ton of channels and people have been going off. As Ben mentioned, our D&D spoilers uh, channel is kind of firing on all cylinders so definitely check that out if you're interested in talking spoilers or getting tips for the upcoming format as it comes out also stay tuned for our uh set breakdown or format breakdown episode which will be coming soon as well and if you want to support the show directly the best place to do that is on patreon you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod we'll be updating that in the next week or so so definitely keep an eye out on that if you've been on the fence with the patreon Really appreciate all you who have been supporting us financially there. It's amazing. We still are baffled that people continue to to support us that way. If you want to reach out to us outside of the Discord, you can do so on Twitter. You can find me at RanitGalfridian, Ben at Betafish1, and the podcast directly at DraftChaffPod. You can also email us at DraftChaffPod at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Enjoy spoiler season. Later. So real quick before we go. I wanted to chat about uh, what's been on TV recently. Because now that I have free time again, I've been getting caught up on all the things that I haven't gotten to catch up on uh, in a while. So 
First off, uh, have you seen Bo Burnham's Inside yet? I have not. I have heard very good things, but I have not seen it. Oh, boy. Uh, it is a time and a half. I was never like the biggest Bo Burnham fan. I- I'd seen like little clips and things from I'd never seen one of his full specials before. But uh, I have been told many times, similar to you, that uh, it was fantastic. Eventually, one of my good friends came over to my apartment, sat me down and was like, all right, we're watching it right now. And I was like, OK, I guess we are. It was her third time seeing it. Uh, and she was still just as excited to watch it. And I was like, okay, it's gotta be good. And somehow despite all the hype, it was exactly as good as people had told me. Uh, Bo really crushed this one. It's, it's kind of a masterpiece. I don't think I've seen anything like it. If you want something that perfectly captures the zeitgeist of right now, just what everybody's feeling post COVID, uh, slash readjusting to the new world slash, uh, global warming, slash capitalism has kind of screwed us for good. Uh, it doesn't offer too many solutions, so it can be a little depressing to watch, but it does really capture what people are thinking. Highly recommend. Uh, extremely well made. But now there's a few other things, too. Uh, Bad Batch. Yes. That I'm... So I apologies, because I sort of spoiled. Also, uh, we're going to try to avoid spoilers here, so I don't know if we need a spoiler warning. But maybe spoiler warning, we're talking about a show, and if you are worried that we're going to spoil something, maybe stop listening. Uh, I sort of spoiled something for you accidentally, Ben. Sorry about <laughs> that. Uh, hopefully that wasn't... I don't think it was the biggest spoiler in the world, and it didn't give you too much info, but sorry about that. Um, yeah, it's fine. We've spoiler alerted enough, so spoiler one more time. Cad Bane is back. It was pretty cool. Uh, I, I could have predicted this, though. Like right. Bad Batch has kind of been Dave Filoni jumping around the universe, uh, seeing how people are doing cad bane he's still there still bounty hunting still awesome tricks still awesome he, he i mean he actually beat hunter in a duel that was sick like, I didn't like think without do much it. effort either he's just like you're you, you're done like i thought it was gonna be like a fight i thought it wasn't just gonna be a duel but he oh, was, i mean he wrecked that guy so good western dave Floyd knows how to make a good western that's moment true. that's for sure but uh I, I don't think there's been one that was the most recent one right most recent episode i thought there was one this yeah. week or actually oh, i guess shoot. it i guess it hasn't i don't know i think i missed last week's as well Uh-oh. there should be one I on friday so i'm not positive but maybe i'll watch it after we're done here uh, yeah i'll probably do the same um anyway that has been pretty good i thought the first episode was the strongest the kind of mini movie um mm. and i think everything else since then has been a little closer to like average clone wars levels of goodness yeah. still pretty great but Nothing quite as as gripping as the the very first one. Now that we're starting to get back into the main story instead of the kind of island hopping, jumping around, checking in with people, uh, I think we're starting to get back into the good stuff. Um, everything with crosshair is is pretty great. Apparently, we're getting a mid season finale, so to speak, where they're doing like kind of a movie type thing for I think it's episode eleven. Nice, um, which is supposed to be pretty phenomenal. So hopefully that that stands up to that. Um, the other thing, I don't know if you caught it, but those two girls that they were that they ran into, like the mining chicks, were Ahsoka's friends from the end of Clone from the the last season of Clone Wars. Right. To be honest, they weren't my favorite in Clone Wars. I forgot their names. They were a little annoying, and uh, they were kind of padding before the absolutely insanely good yes. last arc uh, of, of Clone Wars. So it, once that last arc came up, I kind of wiped everything with them from my head but it, it was a cute throwback and uh 
Last but not least, speaking of Disney, look, Disney's not my favorite company, but they can make some pretty entertaining content. Loki. So uh, what have you seen? The first episode and very, very little of the second. So I'm quite a bit behind. Uh, I saw a poster spoiled of the main villain, so to speak. So I do know mm-hmm. the the cat is out of the bag for me on 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 what her deal is. But uh huh, yeah. So um, it, I yeah. I will say I did really like the first episode. I thought it was it kind of got back to some of what I liked about WandaVision in that they're trying some wacky new stuff. We get to see a cool character that we like a lot. That I think as much as I did like the show. Falcon and the Winter Soldier just didn't straight. It was it, that was just very straightforward MCU buddy cop, yeah. Captain America movie. Whereas mm-hmm. this this feels like oh we're gonna get some some nice new like teases at random stuff that's going on in the MCU and we're gonna see some pretty fun things happening. So yeah, uh, I I kind of agree with Falcon Winter Soldier. It was just all right, entertaining enough to watch. It's like whatever. WandaVision, I think. Uh, well, it definitely was my favorite. I think the first episode of Loki was my least favorite so far. Uh, if I wanted to watch the original Avengers movie, I would have just watched the original Avengers movie. I didn't need them to show me the same clips from it that I remember. I've seen it before. They could have just put a thing at the beginning that says, go rewatch Avengers, then watch this, and they could have saved like 30 well, minutes Well, it wasn't the first Avengers movie that they were recapping, though. It was Endgame. Well, okay, they, yeah, they did some Endgame, but they also did, like, they, they showed the scene from the first Avengers movie, and they, they did the cardinal sin of um recaps in in media which i cannot stand when they show a clip from a movie in universe uh like with like oh. the camera angles and the shots it yeah. breaks everything yeah. i, I know cannot stand about. it so with, like, like the they, interrogation they show, scene where he yeah, was like or, yeah 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 or when um they're when the avengers are all poised above loki yeah. uh, on the top of stark tower and that they have like the shot reverse shot where he's like i'll take that drink now yeah. And it's like, oh, my God, just show it from his perspective the whole time. You yeah. didn't have to switch back to the overhead shot, like looking down at Loki. He doesn't remember it from the Avenger. He doesn't remember it from Hawkeye's yeah. perspective. Yeah. He remembers from it. They could have just freezed the screen yeah. on that and said, this is what it was his perspective when he said, I'll take that drink now. But it was so obviously just like a file that they had uploaded. And that that ruins things for me. I cannot stand it when a show does that. But anyway, forgetting all that. Episode two was much better, and I really liked where it went. Episode three was awesome. Okay. I just, I was like, oh my God, this is so much fun. Like, I am totally hooked at this point. I'm sold. You got me, Disney. Uh, I'm in. So that, that's what I got. You should catch up because we, we got to talk about this thing. Will do. I've uh, got a, a three-day weekend coming up. I definitely will do that. Nice.